sometimes in the discussions that I have with people, the question comes up, is God's word still relevant to us today? The things that are recorded in the book of Micah are almost 3,000 years old. And sometimes we look at the writings and we would say, there's men there who wore these long flowing robes, they wore headdresses, they spoke in a language we do not speak, and therefore it must not be relevant to us today and to our society. I am convinced, fully convinced, that the prophets have a great message that needs to be heard among us today. There's so many parallels between what they faced in their society and what you and I face in ours. You see, if you look at the prophets, some of them served people of prominence. I think about Isaiah, often referred to as the statesman prophets. He was in and among the kings and among the nobles of the land. I think about Daniel, how he appeared in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet there were others like Amos, who was nothing more than a tender of sycamore trees and a herdsman. And now you have Micah o Morsheth. He was a prophet of the common folks. He was a man who would not be preaching in Jerusalem. He's a man who's going to be preaching where the people are and where they need to hear the passage that Brother Marty read just a few moments ago from chapter 3, verse 8. I want to read it to you again. And I want you to notice the man's courage and the man's conviction. But truly I am full of the spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare Jacob his transgression and Israel his sin. Micah didn't back down. He said, this is what God says about the world in which we live today. You know, we have a lot of preachers that will dance around an issue. They don't want to come out and say, well, this is what God says that is wrong and we've got to change who we are and how we're living. That wasn't Micah. Micah was a man with the full power of God behind him. And he has three major messages that we're going to look at in three lessons, tonight being the first of those. And the first one in chapters 1 through 3 is retribution. We deserve what God is giving us. Number two, chapters 4 and 5, he's going to talk about restoration, how God will bring things back. But to, for it to work, chapters 6 and 7, we need a repentance. We need a change among us. And so as you and I study together the book of Micah, let's look and see if we can see that. And so we're going to begin and to describe the fact that the people deserve to be punished. You know, there are times when I was a child, I did things that I knew I deserved to be punished. One of the ones that comes so vividly to me is one that I got a really bad spanking for was my uncle drove a panel wagon to our house. 
I got in the back of his panel wagon, and he had a big old Big Ben clock in the back of it. And it had screws on the back of it, and I took the screws out of it, took the cover off of it. I saw more screws. I took those screws out. Next thing you know, he'd come out, and it's all disassembled. I didn't know how to put it back together. I was good at taking it apart. But you see, I deserved to be punished. I knew better. I was hiding in the back of his panel wagon doing that. I knew I shouldn't be doing that, but I, it looked fun, and I wanted to do it. You have to look and see what Micah sees among the people. They're doing what they want to do because it looks enjoyable to them. They, they find some pleasure in it. You remember what Hebrews chapter 11 says about Moses? He chose to share ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Every aspect of their society was in a pitiful condition. Here's what we're going to look at as we look at chapters 1 through 3. We're going to look, first of all, at their political problems. And it's not as you might suppose. We're going to say, well, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or I'm a this or I'm a that. No, we're going to look at it from the political standpoint as it ties into what God says. Second of all will be the social problems that they had, how they interacted. In fact, if you really wanted to look at it, chapter 1 is how they are disappointing and uh, doing things against God. Chapter 2 is the social, how they're doing things against their fellow man. If you'll remember, Jesus at Matthew 22, verses 38 through 40, summarized the whole Old Testament under two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. But then you get to the third part. And that is the religious problems that they had during their day. So let's begin. I'm going to have to summarize some of these passages uh, so we don't run over in our discussion. We sometimes think that political discussion should be off limits. There are some people who'd say, well, that's a political issue. You shouldn't bring that up in the pulpit. Let me tell you, the prophets had no problem going to a king like Ahab or to a king like Ahaz and saying, you're not doing what's right. God's judgment is upon you. Yet God had judged rulers and the citizens by their moral behavior. We need to understand that if God judged Samaria, the northern kingdom, he judged Judah, the southern kingdom, and he judged Assyria, the nation that was breathing down their neck, and he judged Egypt, the nation upon whom they had been depending, he'll judge the United States absolutely as well. You go to Micah chapter 1 and verse 1, and he says, The word of the Lord came to Micah, Morsheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now when you look at that, he, he mentions three kings. Jotham was, for the most part, a good king. When you get to Ahaz, the best way I can describe him, he was just plain old awful. 
He was a dirty, rotten scoundrel, if you want to be honest about it. 2 Kings chapter 16, and Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. You see, 20 years old to 36, he didn't live long. But Ahaz was a deep disappointment because he had no respect for God. But then you get to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was one of the best kings. In fact, 2 Kings 18, verse 3 says, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. But then it says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was no one like him among the kings of Judah, nor were before him. That makes him stand out. He does what is good. He kept the commandments of God. You've got to go back and you've got to look at the, the turmoil that's going on. There's a lot of political turmoil going on during this time because there was a nation by the name of Assyria, not prominent today, but Assyria was the great ruling power that was going to come down and was going to destroy Samaria and it was going to put a great threat on Judah. Egypt was the one upon whom they were depending. I want you to imagine you've got one powerful nation to the north, Assyria. You've got another powerful nation to the south, Egypt. And they were hedging their bets and saying, we think Egypt's going to be the one who's going to survive all of this. Isaiah writing at the same time said in chapter 30, verse 2 and 3, who go or walk down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. They're putting their confidence, their trust in Egypt. Chapter 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because there are many and horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Ah, now I'm getting to understand what's going on. Here you've got a, a powerful nation here and a powerful nation here. You're the buffer in between. Whose side are we going to be on? You ought to be on the Lord's side. You see, for them, all of their strength was based in man. Let me ask you a question today. Where do you think most people think the strength of our country is to be found? Is it the number in the army? Is it the weapons of warfare that we have? Let me tell you, God can destroy any nation, every nation that does not serve him. That's a political message that's from God. The northern kingdom fell in 722 B.C., 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, and says it came to pass in the fourth year of Hezekiah, which was in the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it, and at the end of three years they took it. You see, they've fallen. But you've got to realize that not only has the northern kingdom fallen, but here comes... King 
And he's ready to take over the southern kingdom as well. And in fact, he does a pretty good job on it. All of the walled cities, you know, the fortified cities, he started taking them as well. What happened was he came to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was scared to death. The northern kingdom has fallen. Hezekiah, now you, you can't stop us. We've already encountered all of your walled cities. 2 Kings 18, verse 13. 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Hezekiah wanted to, to get out of that. And so he said, let me pay you some tribute. You name whatever it is. And so he did. He says, I want 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. That's a lot. How do I know how much it required? You look and see in verse 16, at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord. He was trying to find every scrap of gold he could find to pay this tribute to Sennacherib so that he could survive and Judah could survive. But let me tell you something else about Hezekiah that you may not have known. Hezekiah was a man of faith, though. He may have paid, he may have been afraid, but he knew where to go to for help. And we go to chapter 19, you look at verses 14 and 15. He received a letter from the messengers and he read it. What does he do? He goes up to the house of the Lord and he spreads it before the Lord and he prays to the Lord. You know what God does? God sends an angel that takes out 185,000 of the army of Sennacherib. Guess what happens to Sennacherib's army? They tuck tail and go home. 185,000 who are lost there. That's in verses 35 and 36. But now I've got to move to the second part. What about the social ills? You get to chapter 2 and you know you, you sort of looked at the political environment and you see how God is involved. The social ills are not that different today. You see, there were schemes to defraud the people. Listen to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and they take them by violence. Also houses and seize them so they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Do you hear what it says? They're on their beds at night and they're thinking, you know what, how could I take advantage of somebody? I've got a scheme. Maybe what I'll do, I'll get everybody's phone number and I'll call everybody and I'll tell them, we have got a lottery that you have won. All we need is your address and your social security number. And by the way, we need your bank account number so we can transfer that money into your bank account. You see, the problem is there are people constantly devising schemes. That's what they were doing. They coveted their fields. They saw what people had and they said, that's what we want. And if it's within our power, we will take it. 
Psalm 36, 1 through 4, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good and does not, uh, does not abhor evil. I've gotten now where people do the telemarketing calls. I answer and I say, congratulations, you have won a free Bible correspondence course. All I need you to do is give me your address and I'll be glad to mail it to you. And it's free. If anybody ever does give me their address, I will send them one. I promise you I will. to scam others out of their life saving. They prey on the vulnerable. They covet what others have worked for so hard. If they feel like there's some way that they can take advantage of someone, they'll do it. Remember, it's just three or four years ago that this lesbian couple went into this bakery in Oregon. And they said, what we would like for you to do is we want you to have us a, a gay wedding cake. And the baker said, we'll sell you a cake, but we cannot decorate it with a gay wedding because that violates our convictions. Oh, we're going to sue you. Sue them for $135,000 and won. You see, there, there's people who says, you know what? We can take advantage of you and we're going to do it and we'll do it. Second part of this is we've got to stop any religious influence from affecting our social life. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Micah 2. Do not prattle, you say, to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? They're saying, do not prattle. We don't want to hear you. What's interesting, if you go and you study the original word, the word for prattle here and prophesy are from a word that means to drip or to foam at the mouth. What they're saying is we don't want the, the drip, 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 drip coming from your mouth. We're tired of it. It's annoying to us. No preaching here. Do you remember Amos when he spoke with the power of the Lord and used the Lord's message? In Amos 7 verses 12 and 13, thus Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, there eat bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it's the king's sanctuary. It's his royal residence. You have to understand, there's some places now we don't want your religious message. That's where we are in the United States in 2019. Oh yes, there are places where you don't bring your religion to work. You don't bring your religion to the public realm. Oh, we can't have a prayer in public. 
You folks, you go back to your little place. You, you go to your little church buildings, and there you just preach all you want to, but don't you say anything spiritual outside the building. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. If you are going to have a religious man, what we want you to do is have a religious man who will tell us what we want to hear, not necessarily what we need to hear. There was a prophet, though, they would accept. In a sarcastic tone, in chapter 2, verse 11, if a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be a prattler of this people. He said, you want somebody who will be successful? Just let somebody come and say, let's just drink wine, let's enjoy ourselves. Those are the popular ones. Get to verse 7. It's sort of difficult to translate, and I think the New American Standard of 95 does about as well as any in capturing the original. It says, It is being said, O house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? The idea behind these words is God is just going to be patient without end. I mess up and God is patient with me. He's long-suffering, okay? And I mess up some more. God is patient. And it's inexhaustible. Never mind what Micah and Isaiah are saying. They're saying God's patience has run out. The northern kingdom has already fallen, and you folks in Judah, the, it's very, very close before you will fall too. We have similar modern ideas like once saved, always saved. In other words, once you are in God's grace, there's no way that God will ever condemn you for that. Every sin today is supposedly acceptable to God who doesn't judge anybody about anything at any time. Oh, that's the social aspect of then and of today. Keep going in verses 8 and 9. It says, lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull the robe with the garment from those who trust you as they pass by. Now, I want you to visualize here. He, he's like picturing people coming back from a battle. And when you come back from a battle, you've got the spoils of war. And here's somebody seeing somebody they know, they trespass by. And you reach over and you grab the top of their garment, the top of their cloak, and you just rip it off of them. Aha, I took your coat. Something of value. Just like unsuspecting people here. They took homes from the women and the children, the widows and the orphans. Just like in the New Testament, Mark chapter 12, verse 40 who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, these will receive the greater condemnation. You know, people who prey upon the weak and the poor and get away with it just because they can, that was a social thing. So 
Micah 3, verses 2 and 3. You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot and like flesh for the cauldron. He said, what you're doing is you're just saying, whoever can serve me, he says, I'll just skin them. Now, very quickly, we talked about the political problems. We talked about the social problems. Let's talk about the religious issues. There were good prophets and there were bad prophets. Or let's put it this way more correctly. There were true prophets and there were false prophets. True prophets were those who said, thus says the Lord, and they were telling the truth. There were others who were saying, thus says the Lord, and they were lying. People were being led astray. Look at chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth. But who will prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths? Therefore, you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. He said, let's tell me what's going to happen. All these people who think they've got a message from God, God's going to just silence them. What were they doing? They were crying peace. The parallel going on by Ezekiel in chapter 13 says they cried out and they seduced my people saying, peace, peace, when there were no peace. In fact, he says they make it like a, a plaster wall. You know, you watch television where they make a fake wall to look like it's the background of a house. And sometimes they have their bloopers because somebody leans on one of those walls and they fall through because it's not real plaster, it's just fake. He said, what they're doing, they're putting out a message in front of my people and it's a fake message. And people are trusting it. All people spoke of such people in Romans 16, verse 18. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ for their own belly. And by their smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Are there people today who are out here trying to get people to believe them religiously? Absolutely there are. What motivates them? Greed. Look at Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion upon bloodshed and Jerusalem upon iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay. Her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. What they're saying is you look and God's not ever going to forsake us. <coughs> Timothy was warned about people like that in his day. 
He was told that there are people who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. He says, from such withdraw yourself. Timothy, don't allow yourself to be captured by them. Do you suppose that there's any of the television preachers today who are in it for the money? Do you suppose that some of those guys are on the television pleading for their second new jet? Who say, I only need about $70 million so I can buy me a new jet because I certainly can't fly commercial flights. I need my own private jet to fly and my own private pilot and my own private airport. And they're getting wealthy. And they're so far removed from the great men like Micah who was preaching the gospel. Israel was gone. Judah was not far behind. And God warned, you're on a path of self-destruction. You need to turn things around while you have the opportunity, while you can. God placed Isaiah in the position to talk to the kings. He placed Micah in the position to talk to the people. You see, sometimes we look and we say, well, there's nothing I can do. The people who are in Washington, the people who are in Nashville, the people who are ruling, they're the ones who make the decisions. Well, guess who's putting them there? And sometimes we have our allegiance to people because of what it does to our pocketbook rather than what it does in serving the Lord. What is the believer to do in times of turmoil? I'd suggest to you the song, Hold to God's Unchanging Hand. I'm, I'm glad that you can get to study about Hezekiah because he figured out if I'm going to survive as a king, I've got to hold on to God, and I can't hold on to Egypt, and I can't please Syria. I'm going to have to be what God wants me to be. And you know that starts with each of us individually. It starts with me, and it starts with you. First thing you and I have got to do is we've got to be dedicated to the Lord. We've got to be one of his children, one of his servants, one of his disciples. If we do that. By believing that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of our sins, confessing our faith in him, being baptized. You know, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, verse 19. And then what God expects is those of us who are his people to be loyal, to be faithful, to be true. Sometimes we make mistakes. God's word is there to say retribution awaits you. You deserve it. But I'm offering you an opportunity. Won't you take advantage of it? We can pray with you tonight if you're not serving God faithfully. Won't you take an opportunity of it? We're going to sing, I bring my sins to thee. Would you come as together we stand and sing. 